Father, thank you for this time in your holy word. We pray that the scriptures would come in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would lead some to Jesus Christ, that they would find salvation in him, and others of us, we would follow him more faithfully as our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, I don't know, some of you will know this. So, Elon Musk, one of the smart men on our planet, likes to do funny, weird things sometimes, a lot of the times. And he, he had his team create an actual flamethrower, and they wanted to put it up for sale, and they found out you're not allowed to sell flamethrowers in America. So they named it, they literally did this, they named it Not a Flamethrower, and they sold them. All right. What I'm about to do is not a review. Because if, if I say the word review, you all be like, I'm not paying any attention to he's done that review. I've heard this before. Tell me something new. So this is not a review. I'm trying to sell that, all right? But I want you to see today, there are nine things between those three New Covenant passages, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hebrews 8, there are nine characteristics of New Covenant believers that are given. I want you to see all nine of them in a row today. So we're going to look at the ones we've already seen and then pick up a few new ones, and we'll be, we will have covered them all today, Lord willing. So here's what we've seen so far. There's a general thing in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's with Israel, it's with Judah. This is not replacement theology. Don't be calling it that. This is, this is I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to change the terms of my relationship to those people. He did through the blood of Christ. And the new covenant church was Israel, 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 all the way down until you get to Acts chapter 10 and the house of Cornelius. And then the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And from then on, as per Romans 11, Gentiles are grafted in with Israel and with Judah in their new covenant. That's what's going on here. But then he tells us there's continuity. It's still with Israel and Judah, but there's discontinuity. It's not like that old covenant. Jeremiah 31, 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And we're going to be seeing how it's not like. How is the new covenant unlike the old? The covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 31. Now we're going to see from here on out characteristics of new covenant believers. If you're in Christ, these things are true of you. If these things are not true of you, you are not in Christ. Oh, may you realize it and come to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Here's the first characteristic. All members of the new covenant have God's law written on their hearts. Not just in tablets of stone stored in the ark, but in their hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33a. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've been washed in his shed blood, if you have salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you're a new covenant believer, bless the Lord. And God has done this in you. He has put his law within you. He has written it on your heart. So that's the first characteristic. Let's go on to the second one. I can't re-preach every one of these. Second one. 
Furthermore, all members of the new covenant have God as their God, and God identifies them, points at one, and says, that's one of my people. Where do we get that? Jeremiah 31, 33b. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Not true in the old covenant. Most of them did not have God as their God. Only the remnant, the believing remnant did. Just as the previous point, not true of the old covenant, most of them did not have God's law in their heart. Only the believing remnant did. Only the regenerate remnant did. But everybody in the new covenant has all of these things. And God is their God, and they are his people. Third characteristic. And no members of the new covenant need to be evangelized because they all know the Lord. Unlike the old covenant where one who was saved had to evangelize another who was in the covenant but not saved. No, everyone in the new covenant, not everyone on the planet, not everyone who comes to a church, not my next door neighbors, but everybody who's in the new covenant is good and saved. They know the Lord. So you don't have to say to them, know the Lord. Third characteristic is that um, no new members no members of the new covenant need to be evangelized. Fourth characteristic. And furthermore, bless the Lord, everybody in the new covenant is forgiven. Forgiven of all your sins. He says it in Jeremiah 31, 34b, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's you if you've called upon the name of the Lord. Bless God. Is there anything better on the planet than that? If I have that, ultimately who cares about anything else? That's what I really need, to know I'm right with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. If you want that, all you need to do is turn to God that he may be God to you and call upon the saving name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will forgive your iniquity, and he'll remember your sin no more. Here's a fifth characteristic further in this not review, not a review. And furthermore, God grants every member of the new covenant both, I'll explain these, definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. Now, what are those? Definitive sanctification is the moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved. You're not partially saved. You're not in a process of, you are saved. You're 100% forgiven of all your trespasses and iniquities. You're 100% a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's definitive But then he also begins to do something in you that's progressive, that's ongoing, and that is the holy that you already are by virtue of the shed blood of Christ covering your sins. Now he begins to make you holy in actuality, holy in life, in thought, in heart, in deed. And that's what we mean by these terms that are used here. Um, He grants every member definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. Where do you get that? Well, we're in Ezekiel 36, verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. That depicts the blood of Christ. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So you're clean from all your uncleanness. And then from the actual idols, the things that are your objects of sin while living on the planet, he says, I will cleanse you. That's progressive from those. A sixth characteristic. Furthermore, God regenerates every member of the new covenant. In other words, they're all born again. Not like the old covenant. Some were born again. Some had the spirit of God. Some were new creatures in Christ. Some were regenerate. Everybody who's in the new covenant is born again by the spirit of God. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you, new covenant believers, a new heart. Do you have that new heart? Has God given you that because you've turned to him and Jesus is your Lord? He says, I will give you a new heart. And again, I want to say, what do new hearts do? Humor me, you all know this, right? 
They love new things. They love God. They love the things of God, the people of God, the kingdom of God, the word of God, the church of God. The new hearts love new things, and God gives you that if you're in Christ. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. Unlike the old covenant, everybody in the new covenant has that heart transplant accomplished in them by God. Now, we're ready for, our, our not a review is over and we're ready for actually this is new, all right? This is new. A seventh characteristic, we're gonna look at seven, eight, and nine today. A seventh characteristic is this. Furthermore, every member of the new covenant is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Holy Trinity has taken up residence in you. You are the temple of God. You are a a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The Spirit of God, may I impress that upon you again, is in you. Where do you get that? Ezekiel 36, 27a. And I will put my Spirit within you. Every new covenant believer Every blood-bought child of God, you have the Spirit of God within you. Not all of them had the Spirit of God. Most did not, only the remnant. But everybody who's in the new covenant, you have the Spirit of God in you. What does he do when he's in you? Well, there are many ministries. We could look at them in the New Testament. I should have made a slide of all the ministries of the, new Test- of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. I had it pop up there now, and you can read it while I'm talking. But there are many ministries, but he only singles out a couple things for us, and we're going to see them. But first, I'll, first I want to prove to you that when it says, I will put my spirit within you, every new covenant, blood-bought child of the living God has the Holy Spirit. Why do I want to prove that to you? Because there are believers who are a little messed up on this. Yeah, I'm going to call them messed up, who are a little wrong on this. And they believe that when you're saved, you get saved, and that's good. But there's more you have to do to get the Holy Spirit of God. They might use this term. There's a second work of grace that you need to receive by faith. You're saved by faith, and you need to receive this second work of the Spirit by faith. Or they say you have to speak in tongues in order to receive the Holy Spirit. Have you spoken in tongues? No, then you don't have the Spirit of God. There's that kind of stuff going on out there. I want you to know, I want you to know from God's Word that if you're saved by the blood of Christ, you have the Spirit of God. So let me show you some quick references. Are you ready? Say references. Ah, I love you people. I'm going to come back next week. All right. Hope you will too. So we're showing that every believer has the Holy Spirit. There's no second thing required for that. Acts 2.38. Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and near the end of his sermon, he says, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, now watch this, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does Peter tell them they need to do to receive the Holy Spirit? Repent and be baptized. Technically, the baptism's not even required. To re- just repent and believe. Believe and repent, and you'll receive the Spirit of God, Acts 2.38. Paul chimes in, Galatians 3 and verse 2. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? He's telling them they all received the Spirit. How? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? No. Or by hearing with faith? Yes, that. All the Galatian believers and all the Galatian churches, Paul says they all have the Holy Spirit because when they heard the word of God and they added faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to the hearing, they received the Holy Spirit. 
Try Galatians 4, 6. Paul writes, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Every blood-bought child of the Redeemer has that. What did you need to get the spirit? All you needed was to be a son. If you're a son of God through Jesus Christ, then God has sent the Holy Spirit into your heart. Or 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Paul writes to the, to the Corinthians, to the Corinthians, just remember, keep in the back of your mind, what a mess they were, what sins were going around in their church, what a messed up church they were, and yet Paul's able to say to them, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Every one of them. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. All you have to do is be in Christ, be a child of God, be a believer, and you become a, a dwelling place of God, the third person, the Holy Spirit, and you are a temple, God's temple. Or again, I don't mean to beat this out too thin, but just a little more here, stay with me, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Paul says to the Corinthians, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Just by virtue of being in Christ, he's able to say, all of you, if you're a Christian, if, if you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, you've been made to drink of the Holy Spirit. He's in you. You've taken him inside of you. One more reference to prove this, that every believer has the spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised, where's the promise? Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All those references just to make sure you're good and solid on the fact that if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is in you. You say, all right, Pastor Steve, you made a really big deal out of that. What's the point? What does this matter? What does this have to do with my life? Well, the eighth characteristic is going to drive that home. So let's go right to it. Here's the eighth characteristic of New Covenant believers. And God causes. I want you to notice the word causes, please. God causes. Just a little question before we go on. If God causes something, do you think he can ever make it happen? Yeah, he's pretty good at making things happen. Understatement of the century, right? So God causes every member of the new covenant to render, now I made a big long highfalutin phrase here, to render evangelical, not legal, new heart, not old heart, dead in trespasses and sins, born again, Holy Spirit produced obedience. Let me show you that. Ezekiel 36, 27. And I will put my spirit within you. Okay, you proved that from the New Testament. What does that do in me? What happens to me when the Holy Spirit is in me? And cause you to walk in my statutes and cause, understood, you can bring it forward, you to be careful to obey my rules. Unlike the old covenant, most of them did not have the spirit of God to cause them to walk in his statutes and to be careful to obey his rules. But every single blood-bought, redeemed member of the new covenant is caused by God the Holy Spirit 
to walk in his statutes and to be careful to obey his rules. Let me just ask you a question. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Is he causing that in you? If you have the Holy Spirit, he's causing that. He's called the Holy Spirit because, well, because he's holy. And because when he comes into you, he works to make you what? Holy. He's the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want to point out about this one. Now, every single characteristic of a new covenant believer we've seen so far is 100% true of every new covenant believer now. But this one, like many prophecies of the Old and even New Testament, many prophecies in God's word have, um, have a partial fulfillment in this age and their ultimate fulfillment in the next age. And this is one of them. And I want to point out to you that the New Testament writers, when they take up what's going on in the life of a Christian, are they all 100% caused to walk in God's ways? And the authors of the New Testament answer, no. They're in the new covenant, and there's a substantial work of the Spirit of God in them now. There's a noticeable work of the Spirit of God in them now, but it's partial and incomplete, substantial, but partial, and it will one day be complete. When's that? When you see Jesus Christ, when you go to be with him. Now, let me prove that to you from the New Testament. Am I doing too much proving from the New Testament today? Is it okay? All right, I want you to see that this thing, God causing you to walk in his ways, is partial. That's normal. Otherwise, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, then maybe I'm not saved because I'm not always walking in his ways, and sometimes I get tangled up in some temptation, and I fall into a sin. That's right. I want to show you that that is normative in the Christian life in this age, but not in the age to come. So let's look at what the New Testament authors, the apostles of Jesus Christ, say about what's normative in the life of a Christian who is being caused by the Spirit of God to walk in God's statutes and be careful to obey his rules. What's normative in those people? Galatians 5.17. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to you. See if this is true in you. It is. For the desires of the flesh... These are believers, but they still have the desires of the flesh. Theologians call this remaining sin. You have remaining sin in you. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. You have the spirit in you. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. You have both of those in you. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, notice this. There's a lot of good verbiage here. You're a new covenant believer. You have a new heart, and you want to do things that honor and glorify God. Amen? Like, oh, that I could be sinless. Oh, that I could never have a wrong thought, a wrong word, or a wrong deed again. Well, it will be one day. But oh, that I could have it now. But, but there's a battle inside. This is true of every believer. You have two things that are opposed. You have contrary principles at work in you. You have the Spirit of God inclining your heart to love and to want to do the things that honor God, but you still have remaining sin. You still have the presence of the flesh to drag you back and pull you down, and there's a war inside. Amen? Have any of you experienced that war? Yeah, there's this battle. There's this warfare in you because... Causing you to walk in God's statutes is there, having the Holy Spirit, he's there, but the effect of that is partial in this age, it will be full and complete in the days to come. The Apostle John chimes in on this, he gives us some clear light on this. 
1 John 1, 8 and 9. He's talking to Christians, talking to you all if you're in Christ. If we, Christians, blood-bought, redeemed, Holy Spirit's in us, if we say we have no sin, just try that once. One of you stand up and say that. Come on. I dare you. Stand up and say, I have no sin. Just footnote of church history, there are certain branches of Wesleyanism that used to say that you can be sinlessly perfect. There's a second work of grace that you need, a second work of the Spirit of God by faith. You're saved by faith. You're sanctified by faith. And they worked this whole thing out where you can actually be sinless. What it resulted in, however, sometimes is people would notice uh, you weren't sinless in that, and they would redefine the sin and say it wasn't a sin, it was a mistake. All right, the monkey business you get into when you get messed up theology. But anyway, John says, if we new covenant believers say we have no sin, well, you're only fooling yourself. We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. What is the reality? Here's what the Christian life is. If we confess our sins. That is normative for the Christian life. You have sins to confess. You have failures to keep God's law. Even though the Spirit of God is in you and he's inclined your heart to obedience and you love the things that honor Christ and you hate the things that remain in you that don't honor Christ, but you're still weak. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so the Christian life is a life of confessing our sins or the way Martin Luther, the great reformer, put it is the Christian life is one of repentance. Yeah, it's constant repenting. You keep on believing and you keep on repenting. And you keep on believing and you keep on repenting till you die or Christ returns and you're with him. And then all that business is done. But if we confess our sins, we have this assurance, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Bless the Lord. So you see, this causing me to walk in his statutes is partial now. Our new hearts are not yet sinless hearts. They are new hearts that are seriously inclined to the things of God, in love with God and his statutes and his things, but yet weak due to the presence of remaining sin, weak due to the flesh. John says more about that. When will it be complete? When will that be over? When will I be all holy and pleasing God? 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now. So you are that now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We don't have a real clear understanding of what will I be like then. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Bless the Lord. Get the t-shirt that says, I shall be like him. First John 3, 2. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Oh, I want to be like him now, but I'm not. I got the contrary battling principles inside of me. I got the flesh and I got the spirit, and that's normative for the Christian life. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It means you are saved. If you're not saved, there's no battle. All you have is flesh, and you indulge it, and you're happy to indulge it. The battle starts when you come to saving faith in Christ. Now you have the Spirit of God inclining you to glorify God and live a holy life, and, but you don't, and so you're disgusted with yourself, and you hate it, and you mourn, and you're sorrowful, and you confess your sins, and you repent again and again and again. And he's faithful and just to forgive you. That, my friends, is the normative Christian life. So this promise, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, is partially fulfilled now, but substantially fulfilled now, faltering, you're, you're faltering in your fulfillment of it, you're failing in your fulfillment of it, you're hopeful in your fulfillment of it, and one day when you see him, well, you'll fulfill it. 
He will completely cause you then. You'll be locked by God's grace into a sinless life for all of eternity. So what have we seen? God causes all blood-bought believers to walk in his ways. Now, there are some implications here for non-Christians. Maybe somebody here is not a Christian, and maybe this has been hard for you, and you're like, what's he up there, blah, 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 talking about? What's this have to do with me? Here's what this has to do with you. You're here because you're thinking, at least you ought to be doing this. If you're here, it's because you're thinking, hmm, maybe I ought to get right with God. Maybe I ought to go to church and hear about the Word of God and hear about Jesus Christ. Maybe I ought to expose myself to this. And so you might have a question. So if I believe on the Lord Jesus, what will that do to me? What will happen? Like, you have a question. Will I have to obey his commandments? Will I have to radically change my life and start doing the things that please him? And the answer is, yes, you most certainly will. Jesus says in the Great Commission, teach them to do teach them to do, teach them to do all that I have commanded them. So yes, but that's not the only answer. It's not just that. So yeah, you'll have to grunt it out. You have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and somehow you're going to have to obey God's commandments. No, he also causes you. He also gives you the Spirit of God to incline your heart to want to and to love it and to hate it now when you don't. You have new loves and new hates. The things you used to love, you now hate. The things you used to hate, you now love. That's God and all of his things. So there are implications in this for non-Christians. If you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, the spirit of almighty God will begin to work powerfully in you to incline your heart, your loves, your passions to God and to what pleases him. And you'll mourn when you fail to. And you'll repent and you'll confess when you fail to. That is the normal Christian life. Let me speak to believers for a minute. Can you honestly say, if we watched you for a week, could we honestly say, I see the Spirit of God causing them imperfectly, with repentance, falteringly, but I can see the Spirit of God causing them to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, welcome to the new covenant. So that's our eighth eighth characteristic God causes. Now a ninth and final characteristic. You hanging in there with me? You only have one more, folks. You made it to the end. Don't miss this one. And this one is going to be surprising. It's not at all what you're expecting to hear, and you won't believe me at first. But here's the ninth characteristic. Oh, you're looking at it. Every new covenant believer will dwell in the land, will inherit the land. There were land promises in the Abrahamic covenant. They endure. There were land promises in the old covenant. That's folded up and fulfilled in Christ. There are land promises attached to the new covenant. Let me show you that, Ezekiel 36, 28. Ninth characteristic. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. You say, well, wait a minute, I live in Maryland. (laughs) I'm not in Palestine, and right now, thank God, huh? I'm not in the Middle East. I'm not in Jerusalem. I live in Maryland, long way away from the Middle East. How does this get fulfilled in me? And I want to show you that the old covenant land promises, or these new covenant land promises, are dealt with by the new covenant authors, by the Lord and his apostles. And three things happen to the land promise in the new covenant. Number one, they're limited to only believers. Only believers will get the land in the new covenant land promise. Number two... 
They're broadened to the whole earth. It's not just the land. It's not just Palestine. It's not just one little sliver of property right next to the Mediterranean Sea, but it becomes, they broaden the land promises to the earth. And, and not only that, but a third thing, and they push the fulfillment of this promise into the age to come. So this promise of the new covenant is wholly experienced, is wholly received in the age to come. Hate to tell you, but if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't give you 100 acres. Now, you don't get any land. But you get a land promise that will be completely fulfilled in the future. Let me show you that from Jesus and his apostles. Just three quick references. Here's the first, Matthew 5.5, Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. Why are the meek blessed? Because they're meek before God. They're submissive to God. They've bowed before the sovereignty of God. They've called upon the name of God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be their sovereign and their Lord. So they are blessed. Blessed are the meek. And you'd think because they're meek, people will step all over them and they'll never have any property. Then they'll never have any goods. But no, blessed are the meek, why? For they shall inherit the earth. The Lord Jesus broadens the land promise to the earth. He limits it only to the meek, believing people in the new covenant, all of them. And he also pushes it forward into the eschaton. He pushes it forward into the age to come. They shall inherit the earth. Well, you haven't inherited the earth yet, have you? This is the part where I'll just tell you, Debbie and I live on a very small property. We live in a little condo community, garage condo. We have a little front yard and a little backyard. The front yard is about as big as this square baptistry behind me. It's about the size of the front yard. I can blow leaves off of that in two minutes. And the backyard's maybe twice that size. It isn't much bigger, and that's all we have. And ask me, ask, go ahead, humor me. Ask me, would I like to have property? Ask me. Man, I would like to have 400 acres. You know why I would like to have 400 acres? Because then I could have a dog. I mean a big dog. I could have three big dogs on 400 acres. And maybe I've never hunted in my whole life. Maybe I would start hunting because there'd be deer on that property and other edible animals. I, I, would, I would love to have some property. I would just go for walks out in that property. Might build a tree house. When I was a kid, we built a tree house. Might build another tree house. I would just do things in property. I loved that property. But I realize it's never going to be. The little postage stamp we have now, that's, that's what we have. That's what we're going to have. It's never going to get any bigger. In fact, we'll see one day to retire, we might have to sell it and take the money and move into something that's a lot less expensive. Does that bother me? Not in the slightest. Because just in the batting of an eye, if you're a man and woman of faith, you believe that in just a very short time, you will inherit the earth. You say, Pastor Steve, I live in an apartment. What's that mean for me? Don't worry about it. If you can buy a house, do. Interest rates now? Maybe don't. <laughs> but, but it doesn't matter. I could live in a tent. This will surprise some of you. Debbie and I have lived in a tent. We have actually lived in a tent. I gotta, I'll tell you the story real quick because now I mean, you wonder, what, what's that? Pastor Steve and Debbie lived in a tent. We didn't hear about this. Yeah, so back when we had our first baby and he was just a little guy, 
We moved from Washington, D.C. area, that seminary, to go to Denver, to Denver Seminary. And I worked at United Parcel nights, and they told me, yeah, when you get to Denver, you're a great guy. When you get there, go to United Parcel. Tell them, you know, we'll have a job ready for you there. They'll be expecting you. I, we got to Denver. I went to UPS, and they said, we never heard of you, and you don't have a job. And nobody would rent us an apartment unless I had proof of employment, and I had no employment. So we had all our earthly belongings in the back of Debbie's brother's truck. He was with us, and Debbie's brother-in-law was with us to help us make the whole drive, and we had our little Fiat, our little car, and we had nowhere to go because nobody would rent to us, and we didn't have much money either. So the seminary I was going to said, oh, we have a piece of vacant property. It's got a building that has walls only, no windows, no roof, but if you want, you can go camp in there for a while. We did. It was cool. Debbie and I were homeless. We were literally homeless. And with our baby and her brother and her brother-in-law, we were camping in a vacant piece of property near Denver, Colorado. Did we care? Not at all. We were into backpacking, so we just thought it's another trip. <laughs> and for about, I can't remember, I think for about a week with our baby, we dwelled in a tent and lived in the land. Do I want to do, do, I want to do it again? No. But it's not a big deal, because in a batting of an eye, I will inherit with you, and you will inherit the land. The land. Did we read Romans 4.13? We did not. Let's go on to that. Here, here's what Paul says about that. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, wait a minute, he would be heir of Palestine. No, the New Testament authors broaden that out. They narrow it down to only believers. They broaden it out to the world, and they push it forward to the eschaton, the age to come. The promise to Abraham and his offspring, and Galatians tells us that offspring is Christ and all who are in Christ, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, you didn't get that from Moses, but through the righteousness of faith. If you're a believer with faith in Jesus Christ, you are an heir of the world with Abraham. How cool is that? Put that on your T-shirt. I'm inheriting the world. Wear that to the gym and see what happens. Peter chimes in, 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for what? A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, permeates the place. That's what we're waiting for. Are you waiting for that? you're in Christ, you're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. Lord, this is wonderful. This is a great earth. We want to exercise responsible dominion and so on and so forth. But come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm looking forward to that new heavens and that new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what are we seeing? The new covenant has a land promise, but the New Testament authors and the Lord narrow it to believers only, broaden it to the whole earth, and push it forward into the age to come. So, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Hebrews chapter 8. Let me just give you a hint. Next week for a Christmas message, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9. You know, not a flamethrower, not a Christmas message. But anyway, Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11, look at, looking at implications of the new covenant for Israel, their salvation, and us, and our salvation. Let me end with a question. Here's the end of the sermon. I'm asking you a question. Are you a new covenant believer in Jesus Christ?
Are you bought by his shed blood? Are you washed and given the remission of your sins? Do you have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God dwelling in you and inclining your heart to gospel-produced, spirit-produced obedience to Jesus Christ? Are you saved? Time is given to us for eternity. Time is here to prepare for eternity. Eternity is the real thing. Don't waste your time by not preparing for eternity. You prepare for eternity by calling upon the saving name of Jesus Christ. Oh, may you do so today. Let's bow and pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your holy word. We pray now that upstairs and downstairs and all over the globe, lots and lots of people would be hearing the gospel today, believing on Christ and finding everlasting life. Oh, Father, draw our friends who are here with us today. Draw the people who are sitting near us but aren't in Christ. Draw them. Lord Jesus, draw them to yourself by your word and your spirit. And we who have been drawn, oh, Lord, we want to live to your honor and your glory. We want our lives to back up our testimony of our faith in you. So we pray for a greater work and a greater power of your Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, subdue the desires of our flesh. Fill us with greater measures of the Spirit and greater measures of love for God, for you, God, and for righteousness and holiness. Lord, help us to live like blood-bought, new covenant followers of Jesus Christ. For we ask in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. Two things before Pastor Stan leads us in communion. Number one, would you like to talk to a Cornerstone pastor? Here's how we can make that easy for you. All you have to do is text the word pastor to the number that's on the screen, and one of our pastors will contact you this week. We love doing that. Don't hesitate to do it. Text that uh, word pastor to that number, and we'll be in touch. Here's the second thing. I've been asked to plug something new that we have in our social media. We have a new podcast called, it's a little embarrassing for me to announce, it's called Ask Pastor Steve. It's embarrassing to announce that, thing. your name's in the thing. Um, it comes out the very first and third Wednesday of every month, and what happens on Ask Pastor Steve? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? You send in questions, you ask Pastor Steve, and we pick the questions and we answer them on that podcast. So we've been doing this for a few weeks now, but we want you to know about it. You can find it on Facebook, Cornerstone Facebook, or Cornerstone YouTube, or if you just get our e-news that comes out on Thursdays, you can sign up for that at the desk after church if you want. If you get our e-news, you'll see all of our media of the week lined up in there, and you can find Ask Pastor Steve every first and third Wednesday. We want you to participate in it. Please send us some questions. You can text the word question to that number on the screen. Is it up there? Thank you. you I don't see that on the back screen. And, and uh, we will handle your question if time permits. Thank you very much for participating in the social media efforts of our church. And now, Stan Gray, please lead us in communion. Thank you, Steve. Make sure I'm on here. Okay. I am. Good morning, everyone. The psalmist tells us the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God has given us everything we need to know him. The word of God has the power to convert and revive the soul. As we prepare for communion, I want you to keep that in the forefront of your minds. If you are a new covenant believer, 
we welcome you to join us at this table of communion. If you need elements, you can find them at the back of the sanctuary. For our meditation today, we're going to be considering 1 Peter 1.23, which says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. If you're a child of God today, you have been born again through the living, powerful, and abiding word of God. The Word of God came, it converted you, it changed you, it made you a new creature in Christ. And as Steve pointed out, it causes you to want to do what is right in the Word of God. And the Bible also tells us that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, and He was full of grace and truth, and that Word is the living Lord Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of the Word of God, and it is through Him that we come to know Him, the Word of God, which is precious to us. And what should that do to our hearts? Well, it should cause us to bow before Him in worship. It should humble us before God and cause our hearts to praise Him. Amen? Amen. The Word of God, the mighty, powerful, living Word of God. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul goes on to say, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we thank God.